Chapter 12 of Series Runaway and Other Essays. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Series Runaway and Other Essays by Alice Maynell. Chapter 12 Tithonus. It was resolved, said the morning paper, to color the borders of the panels and other spaces of Portland stone with arabesques and other patterns, but that no paint should be used, as paint would need renewing from time to time. The colors, therefore, and here is the passage to be noted, are all mixed with wax liquefied with petroleum, and the wax surface sets as hard as marble. The wax is left time to form an imperishable surface of ornament, which would have to be cut out of the stone with a chisel if it was desired to remove it. Not apparently that a new surface is formed which, by much violence and perseverance, could, years hence, be chipped off again, but that the ornament is driven in and incorporate, burn in, and absorbed, so that there is nothing possible to cut away by any industry. In this humorous form of ornament we are beforehand with posterity. Posterity is baffled. Will this victory over our sons' sons be the last resolute tyranny prepared by one age for the coercion, constraint, and defeat of the future? To impose that compulsion has been hitherto one of the strongest of human desires. It is one doubtless to be outgrown by the human race. But how slowly that growth creeps onwards. Let this success in the stenciling of St. Paul's teach us to our confusion. There is evidently a man, a group of men, happy at this moment because it has been possible by great ingenuity to force our posterity to have their cupola of st paul's with the stone moulding stenciled and picked out with niggling colours whether that undefended posterity like it or not and this is a survival of one of the obscure pleasures of man attested by history it is impossible to read the thirty-nine articles for example and not to recognize in those acts of final all resolute eager eternal legislation one of the strongest of all recorded proofs of this former human wish if galileo's inquisitors put a check upon the earth which yet moved a far bolder enterprise was the reformers who arrested the moving man and inhibited the moving god the sixteenth century and a certain part of the age immediately following seemed to be times when the desire had conspicuously become a passion say the middle of the sixteenth century in Italy and the beginning of the seventeenth in England, for in those days we were somewhat in the rear. There is the obstinate, confident, unreluctant, undoubting, and resolved seizure upon power. Then was Rome rebuilt, resurfaced, marked with a single sign and style. Then was many a human hand stretched forth to grasp the fate of the unborn. The fortunes and the thoughts of the day to come were to be as the day then present would have them, if the dead hand, the living hand that was then to die, and was to keep its hold in death, could by any means make them fast. Obviously to build at all is to impose something upon an age that may be more than willing to build for itself. The day may soon come when no man will do even so much without some impulse of apology. Posterity is not compelled to keep our pictures or our books in existence, nor to read nor to look at them. But it is more or less obliged to have a stone building in view for an age or two. We can hardly avoid some of the forms of tyranny over the future, but few, few are the living men who would consent to share in this horrible ingenuity at St. Paul's, this petroleum and this wax. 
In 1842 they were discussing the decoration of the Houses of Parliament, and the efforts of all in council were directed upon the future. How the frescoes then to be achieved by the artist of the day should be made secure against all mischances, smoke, damp, the risk of bulging, even accidents attending the washing of upper floors, all was discussed in confidence with the public. It was impossible for anyone who read the papers then to escape from some at least of the responsibilities of technical knowledge. From Genoa, from Rome, from Munich especially, all kinds of expert and most deliberate schemes were gathered in order to defeat the natural and not superfluous operation of efficient and effacing time. The academic little capital of Bavaria had, at about the same date, decorated a vast quantity of wall space of more than one order of architecture. Art revived and was encouraged at that time in place with unparalleled obstinacy. They had not the malice of the petroleum that does violence to St. Paul's, but they had instead an indomitable patience. Under the commands of the master Cornelius they baffled time and all his work, refused his pardons, his absolutions, his cancelling indulgences, by a perseverance that nothing could discourage. Who has not known somewhat indifferent painters mighty busy about their colors and varnishes? Cornelius caused a pit to be dug for the preparation of the lime, and in the case of the Ludwig Kirk, this lime remained there for eight years with frequent stirrings. This was in order that the whole fresco, when at last it was entrusted to its bed, should be set there for immortality. Nor did the master fail to thwart time by those mechanical means that should avert the risk of bulging already mentioned. He neglected no detail. He was provident and he lay in wait for more than one of the laws of nature to frustrate them. Gravitation found him prepared, and so did the less majestic but not vain dispensation of accidents. Against bulging he had an underplot of tile set on end. Against possible trickling from an upper floor he had asphalt. It was all part of the human conspiracy. In effect the dull pictures at Munich seemed to stand well. It would have been more just, so the present age thinks of these preserved walls, if the day that admired them had had them exclusively, and our day had been exempt. The painted cathedrals of the Middle Ages have undergone the natural correction. Why not the Ludwig Kirk? In 1842, then, the nations were standing, as it were, shoulder to shoulder against the walk of time and against his gentle act and art. They had just called iron into their cabal. Cornelius came from Munich to London, looked at the walls at Westminster, and put a heart of confidence into the breast of the commission. The situation, he averred, need not be too damp for immortality with due care. What he had done in the Glyptothek and in the Pinacothek might be done with the best results in England in defiance of the weather, of the river, of the mere days, of the divine order of alteration, and, in a word, of heaven and earth. Meanwhile, there was that good servant of the law of change, lime that had not been kept quite long enough ready to fulfill its mission. They would have none of it. They evaded it, studied its ways, and put it to the rout. Many failures that might have been hastily attributed to damp were really owing to the use of lime in too fresh a state. Of the experimental works painted at Munich, those only have faded which are known to have been done without due attention to materials. Thus, a figure of Bavaria, painted by Kalbach, which has faded considerably, is known to have been executed with lime that was too fresh. One cannot refrain from italics. The way was so easy. 
it was only to take a little less of this important care about the lime to have a better confidence to be more impatient and eager and all to have been well not to do a virtue of omission this is not a matter of art criticism it is an ethical question hitherto unstudied the makers of laws have not always been obliged to face it inasmuch as their laws are made in part for the present and in part for that future whereof the present needs to be assured that is the future is bound as a guarantee for present security of person or property some such hold upon the time to come we are obliged to claim and to claim it for our own sakes because of the reflex effect upon our own affairs and not for the pleasure of fettering the time to come every maker of a will does at least this were the men of the sixteenth century so moderate not they they found the present all too narrow for the imposition of their will it did not satisfy them to disinter and scatter the bones of the dead nor to efface the records of a past that offended them it did not satisfy them to bind the present to obedience by imperative menace and instant compulsion when they had burnt libraries and thrown down monuments and pursued the rebels of the past into the other world and had seen to it that none living should evade them then they outraged the future whatever misgivings may have visited those dominant minds as to the effectual and final success of their measures would their writ run in time as well as place and were the nameless populations indeed their subjects whatever questions may have peered in upon those rigid councils and upon those busy vigils of the keepers of the world they silenced by legislation and yet more legislation they wrote in statute books they would have written their will across the skies their hearts would have burnt for lack of records more inveterate and of testimonials that mankind should lack courage to question if in truth they did ever doubt lest posterity might try their lock perhaps they did never so much as foresee the race of the unnumbered and emancipated for whom their prohibitions and penalties are no more than documents of history if the tyrannous day of our fathers had but possessed the means of these our more diffident times they who would have written their present and actual will upon the skies might certainly have written it in petroleum and wax upon the stone fate did them wrong in withholding from their hands this means of finality and violence into our hands it has been given at a time when the student of the race thought perhaps that we had been proved in the school of forbearance something indeed we may have learnt therein but not enough as we now find we have not yet the natural respect for the certain knowledge and the probable wisdom of our successors a certain reverend official document not guiltless of some confusion of thought lately recommended to the veneration of the present times those past ages with their store of experience doubtless as the posterity of their predecessors our predecessors had experience but as our ancestors none none therefore if they were a little reverend our own posterity is right reverend it is a flippant and novelty-loving humor that so flatters the unpassed and refuses the deference due to the burden of years which is ours which grown still graver will be our children's end of chapter 12 recording by philip gould